Be Honest podcast with Dr. Yana and Dr. Sherry, where we hold honest conversations about life, relationships, challenges, and everything in between with unfiltered discussions with real people offering their authentic stories, experiences, and perspectives. No topic is off limits and no story is too small. Join us on United Public Radio Network, 107.7 FM. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to United Public Radio, 107.7 from New Orleans, Louisiana. If you're enjoying our content, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe to Be Honest Talks for more, up, more updates and exciting stories. Your support means the world to us. We love sharing our thoughts and ideas on this show. So keep in, con- keep in mind our content isn't personalized advice. We're a couple of enthusiastic voices with strong opinions. Take us with a grain of salt, a dash of humor, and always trust your gut. Now let's talk about sex and laugh a little. Ooh, talk about sex and laugh. Yes, hello, ladies and gentlemen. We are here to talk about sex today. (laughs) About human sexuality. So what is human sexuality? Well, it refers to the ways in which we experience and express ourselves as sexual beings. It encompasses a wide range of aspects, including biological, psychological, and social factors. It includes sexual orientation, just like we're going to talk about, such as being heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual. And nowadays, uh, everything changes so fast, I don't even know what kind of sexual there is, but we will talk. Dr. Sherry will enlighten us about it. Also, sexual behavior, sexual desires and fantasies, gender identity, and the ways in which we form and maintain intimate relationships. It is a complex and multifaceted aspect of human life that varies across cultures and people. So, has sexuality changed over the centuries? And if yes, how do we relate to it in the modern world? So, Dr. Sherry, shall we talk about the history of human sexuality? Let's do it. Take us way back. Way back. From the beginning of time, because we all the... know without sex, right, we wouldn't be here without it. So take us back to the beginning of time. <laughs> that is so true. You know, things have changed so dramatically over the centuries, and they change um, just from the beginning to the century to the middle and the end. It's just everything changes so fast. So um, the history of human sexuality is a complex tapestry woven through the fabric of civilization. Civilizations, I would say, spanning millennia and encompassing a diverse array of cultural, social, and biological factors. While it is impossible to encapsulate the entirety of this vast history in a brief summary, we can, I guess, highlight the key milestones and themes that have shaped our human sexual attitudes, behaviors, and norms over time. We don't know much about the uh, prehistoric and ancient times. 
Although with the ancient times would be much we could talk about the ancient civilizations such as Mesopotamia, Egypt, Greece, and Rome. They had such diverse attitudes towards sexuality, ranging from acceptance and celebration uh, to repression and regulation. Just like how about the, uh, just like nowadays, right? In many ancient societies, uh, sexuality was intertwined with religion, mythology, and social hierarchy. And if we think about that, that was a very intricate uh, society or societies that I would say a very interesting approach to human sexuality. For example, now we are pretty much open or society makes us to be open, right, to other types of sexuality, not necessarily uh, um, homosexual or heterosexual, right? There are different kinds. But at that time, interestingly enough, uh, in ancient Rome, in ancient Greece, it was actually a norm for uh, men to engage in homosexual relationships and was absolutely normal. And they used women for uh, procreation and for domestic uh, affairs. So if you could see, it was so, in fact, uh, I can't say really mesmerized, but um, perplexed by all of those engravings and art on medieval uh, vases or the ancient Roman or Greek Hellenistic vases, where you would see depiction, uh, graphic depiction of actual intercourses that uh, people would have. Uh, the interesting thing about it that the men would engage with men and young boys and um, women would not be in the picture at all on those vases <laughs> or, or uh, body dips. It's a <laughs> very interesting thing. And somehow I noticed that men would be depicted like really dark and women would be depicted as white, I guess, to distinguish who is who. Not only that they were depicted having sex with each other men, there were also a lot of depictions of animals. And if they were putting that uh, on such domestic uh, things as a vase, for example, right? Like, and evidently it was displayed at home. So we could think that it was a normal uh, occurrence at the time. So if now it is a taboo, perhaps at that time it was normal. So if we're talking about homosexuality, it was a normal thing. In fact, it was not just a normal thing. It was an accepted thing in a society as uh, the highest of all nor normalcies. <laughs> yeah, I would say I would say religion probably influenced a lot of the what we may consider taboo today. I'm not really strongly um, affluent with religious history, but I think it does create a lot. I would say like the Victorian times. When we move into that, that era of time, it was more taboo. I believe I'm a proponent of sexual fluidity, right? So I think sexuality is just fluid. However, when we start placing labels and designating things to sexuality, I think it becomes very complex and tabooish, as you're saying. That's true. Tabooish is the thing. I wish you to explore that because you are uh, an expert in this topic. Somewhat. Uh, you know, they say, it, it, like, uh -huh. go ahead. 
<laughs> Go ahead. I was going to move to medieval and Renaissance periods. Yeah, well, you take us through the history first, because I, I was about to bring up the biological aspect of um, being inside the womb. Ooh, all right. Well, let's go through the history before we go into the womb. <laughs> all right. So how did it... Oh, um, one thing that I wanted to mention also, a very interesting thing and curious thing on how do we as humans become, became at the time uh, heterosexual because uh, that was uh, homosexuality was a normal thing. So how did we get <clears throat> from homosexuality to heterosexuality. So the legend says that at the time when men would engage uh, uh, in intimate relationships with each other and would spend so much time in symposiums, that's what it was. And now in symposium, we think that we can just go and practice our oratorial skills. At that time, symposium was actually men sitting together with men. Uh, a lot of the times around the pool. And like a bathhouse today. Would you consider like a that a bathhouse today? Hamam. <laughs> <laughs> but there, uh, they would uh, uh, engage in all sorts of different conversations from politics to economy, literature at the time, and art. And uh, uh, they would be um, right there. They would be just uh, uh, in front of everybody. Um, hmm. Let's say having sex. Or we need to bring that back. <laughs> engaging in <laughs> intimate intercourse. <laughs> so what happened? Men were educated at the time, and interestingly enough, even if the first society was a female society, what happened to that? Oh my God, let, let's bring it back. Uh, the role of women was behind the closed doors, right? And men would come home to procreate um, and raise their kids. No, that would be a female role to raise the kids. The interesting thing is that there was one woman and I'll share that uh, her name with you in just a few seconds. So that woman, she was actually the prostitute on the streets. And she decided, was thinking actually hard at the time. She shared that with me. That's how I know. <laughs> she was thinking hard. How can we bring men to socialize with us women more? And um, she realized that if men are so educated, then she needed to get educated in certain matters too, to be interesting to men, for them to engage in those conversations with her as well, to spend time with her as well. Such a smart uh, prostitute, right? If you, if you just look at it this way, such a smart woman. Well, I mean, and, are, a lot of them are. It was the first job, right? So I'm sure she held the throne of that. I'm yeah. looking forward to knowing who this is, actually. Yeah, well, she's not the woman in history that we don't uh, particularly can read about her, about her life. But the thing is, she did learn about the political aspects. She learned about economy, literature. She indeed became very educated and men that probably would still engage in a uh, uh, sexual relationship, even with prostitutes, because of what the, was the norm at the time, it was kind of a, a religious marriage at the time and was really widely practiced at the temples. 
So that was a normal thing actually to happen. So probably men and those women also would be considered as, as like a, a sort of a holy prostitution. Interesting, right? And oh, this prostitute. My <laughs> <laughs> so she decided that she is going to be this educated woman. And uh, men started to spend more time with her. And then she brought it to other women and women decided also that they're going to follow this example and uh, spend time learning and making men interested in having conversations with them as well to spend more time in their company. Well, her name was Hetera, was Getera. Hetera, and this is how we have heterosexual relationships because of that fantastic woman. <laughs> interesting. Wow. Story, right? Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So that's how we are today. Well, and then later we go to medieval and Renaissance period. Oh, my favorite one. Uh, the Middle Ages witnessed the dominance of Christianity in Europe, which of course heavily influenced the attitude toward sexuality. And we remember that more than we remember the Hellenistic and Roman times, of course, the church promoted celibacy, monogamy, and procreation within marriage while condemning premarital sex, homosexuality, and non-procreative sexual acts. Can you imagine if we lived uh, nowadays without uh, non-procreative sexual acts? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we so might I'm, not be having this this show right now if we were. We would not be. We would be probably burned at the stake at the time. <laughs> so, uh, Renaissance humanism brought about uh, a rediscovery of classical texts that uh, offered more liberal views on sexuality, leading to a gradual loosening of sexual taboos. And that took us then to Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution. What happened there? The Enlightenment era saw the rise of secularism, individualism, and rationalism, which challenged traditional religious doctrines regarding sexuality. Thinkers like uh, John Locke and Voltaire uh, advocated for personal liberty and sexual freedom. So kind of going back to uh, Hellenistic times, right? The sexual revolution. Look at that. So the Industrial Revolution brought about significant social and economic changes, altering family structures, uh, gender roles, and sexual mores. And uh, women uh, were not kept behind the closed doors. However, you mentioned the Victorian era. And that was something very interesting. The Victorian period is often characterized by its paradoxical attitude towards sexuality. On one hand, there was a facade of prudery and strict moral codes, especially among the upper classes. While on the other hand, there was a fascination with sexuality in literature, art, and science. And I wouldn't be surprised because there was nowhere else to, to read it or engage in. This era also saw the emergence of the medicalization of sexuality and patholization of non-normative sexual behaviors. That was a very interesting time. So, uh, do you particularly uh, uh, favor Victorian era, or was I, I it... just I just know it, was, it appeared to be a little bit more repressed at that time sexually? 
I believe I would say uh, people weren't as uh, you didn't speak about it as much. Was it the Victorian area? They kind of um, or it was more. I don't have a go-to though. I, I believe I would come a little bit for closer to industrial revolution. I'd come to the sexual revolution of birth control and those types of things and how that shaped history, right. how that shaped um, procreation or lack thereof and how it shaped the idea of having sex and so yeah. on and so forth. Well, Victoria society uh, placed a strong emphasis on morality, modesty, and the Repression. preservation of the family unit. Yeah, sexual expression was tightly regulated, mm -hmm. and any deviation from societal norms was considered a taboo. So during this time, discussions about sex were considered improper, and uh, uh, open displays of affection were discouraged. Look at that, how much we have gone from there. But publicly discussing or portraying sexual topics uh, was seen as scandalous and offensive. The Victorian era often associated with the idealized image of chastity, purity, and repression. So would you say that's the birthplace of shame? Birthplace of shame, absolutely. Kind Very of interesting, history, right? Yeah. They had a cult of domesticity. Again, if we're going back uh, to the historical times, uh, Hellenistic and Roman, the Victorian ideal of womanhood was centered around domesticity and motherhood. Good thing there was uh, 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 not so much of homosexuality and women actually saw men home uh, procreating with them. Well, that's why I say it's very important. Like men oftentimes aren't looked at as important as women because you can, men can go to war and they can die. But as long as there's a woman around, she can procreate. But if all the women die, what are the men going to do? They can have heterosexual <laughs> sex, but you're probably, you know, chances are you're not going to procreate. Oh. In today's times, there's a lot of frozen sperm. So if, I guess if you can freeze a, somehow a, all the uh, that stuff, you know, the science, I think, is going to be it already is. The science is amazing of what we can create now. So it will be interesting to come back 100 years from now, even in a short period of time. I see. think we're going to be shocked with what actually is going to happen. You and I showing up there as we look right now with our ideas and where we go there and everything is repressed. You're not supposed to have sex at all. There's no such word as sex. Remember like uh, in the movie, ah, what was that movie? I forget that the futuristic movie where no, I think it was uh, Sylvester Stallone was uh, having, was he or somebody else was having essentially the sex through the AI experience, that's what we call it now. That was a movie of the 80s. Imagine that. There was Sandra Bullock, I think, that, yeah, yeah, there was Sandra Bullock. And she's like, oh, yikes, exchanging uh, fluids. Oh, no, we don't want that to happen. No, well, essentially, no. that's what we're doing. <laughs> when we're having sex, we're exchanging fluids. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe not with AI, but I mean... <laughs> <laughs> when we're kissing and stuff yeah of course. even vaginally you know taking it back to biology um in ultrasounds of intrauterine, when babies are inside the womb they have ultrasound sounds showing fondling of the genitals they have ultrasounds showing um erections and vaginal lubrication from birth on so it's um we're programmed essentially to procreate how to procreate. else would this how else other than procreation would our species survive? Not to discount anyone's sexual orientation or identity, any of that. I understand we have science now, but there needs to be some sort of procreation in some shape, form, or matter for us to exist as a species. 
And it happens from the womb to the tomb. And imagine if we had just uh, the male society without the women. And of course, it will just die out immediately, right? Unless we find some biological means how to make men pregnant. And imagine you and I went 100 years from now and we see men pregnant. Oh, my God. The I don't know if they would survive. Basic revolution. Pain. Dr. Sherry. Basic <laughs> revolution. And that's well, it. Well, you are proposing something that, well, there is what's now like the trans movement where uh, female to male are able to carry children, but they have transitioned um, with their identity. So essentially a man can, a woman can identify as a man and carry a baby. Biologically, I don't believe so. However, many people out there may argue with that. Well, they can argue as long as they want. Uh, what is this expression? Until the cows come home, until pigs fly, right? But nevertheless, nevertheless, biologically, it has not been yet possible. Maybe in a hundred years it would be possible, which is not an exception at all. But at uh, looking at the state of affairs as they are now, it is not possible um, yet for male for biological women, uh, no, for biological men who turned women to carry children. And in fact, I saw um, the interview of one woman who, uh, of a man, uh, the head of the household with children who became a woman and he had surgeries and he was just actually crying in his interviews stating that uh, he's having a lot of uh, uh, recurrent infections and he's having children that he had children and at the same time he said that I have children and was warning the medical um facilities and the doctors medical field not to perform those surgeries because there's not enough of evidence not enough and we don't know how it affects uh, human beings and he said that if i had to do it again i would not have done it so evidently our medical field has not progressed that to that area yet and men are not able to become women and vice versa as much as they want well, evolution again. I agree with you. Evolution is evolution is not man-made. Evolution exactly. is, a, is a, it's a part of organic nature, right? So I think when we start tampering with organic nature, things become complex and they can have adverse side effects. I mean, just look at climate change, right? We're tampering mm -hmm. with organic mm -hmm. nature of a planet, which is having the repercussions of that. So I think anytime we tamper with something that's not natural, there's some, oftentimes a a a consequence and there are a lot of people who are have transitioned and they're regretting their transition and they can't go back so um i mean i support everyone to each their own in this world be yourself be you love yourself love other people kindness uh i just on board with that yeah medical it's just medical field has not uh, reached that point yet uh, when uh, those surgeries would be successful and without complications so like what i'm saying in 100 years we're going to be there and there will be men walking with the children yes with babies in their implants. yeah it's very interesting right because it is uh, very interesting to take i i look at it i i understand because um i spent the majority of my life with women as a gay woman so i understand i, I identify as sexually fluid i'm open to it um i don't know where i'm going with this topic i guess uh but i i just believe that you can have a strong sense but when it's so strong and you start to tamper with nature it's just i, I don't really know how to put it into words you know it's just it's 
to why take something that's so simple and that's given so so freely and make it so complicated but i guess that's just how we continue to evolve yes you know if you've already created with a womb why would why do we implant wombs but what you're saying is in 100 years maybe we'll be women will be extinct and men will be carrying babies is that what you're proposing not necessarily extinct but perhaps there will be um uh, the revolution uh, that the women would revolt against uh, uh, having perhaps uh, maybe in, not in a hundred years, maybe in the 200 to 500 years, or maybe it would be imposed by the government. Who knows at the time? So either, and, our, either we're going to, this planet's going to dissolve itself or we're going to have a really interesting. Or life. we'll have the matriarchal society versus okay. patriarchal society. And men would uh, be staying home with children most of the time. Of course, they will be giving birth to them. Why not? <laughs> well, if you watch that, have you watched the documentary, The Zeitgeist? Yes. Okay, they go on to say we're entering, we're leaving the age of Aquarius and we're entering the age of Pisces. And mm -hmm. Pisces is a feminine. So you have, you're kind of leading on the topic of um, femininity. So it's kind of like where femininity is rising. And patriarchy is kind of, um, I guess it would define what people might call weak men out there today. A lot of people refer, there's a lot more, it seems like people are becoming weaker and it's just maybe that influx of evolution in that direction. What an interesting statement and a great observation because I never gave it a thought. So perhaps that is the influence. And why? Because I've been pondering the uh, fact of why uh, men became so feminized uh, nowadays and why there is this uh, tendency for feminine type uh, guys. And um, we have to have a balance, of course, feminine and masculine. We all have men and women that all we all have uh, masculine and feminine traits, of course, right? But at the same time, they have to be balanced. And when, when they get out of balance, then we uh, deviate from normalcy, so to say, the normalcy in our society, right? And it becomes something else. So yeah, in 100 years or 200 years, that the, whenever you and I decided to jump to, <laughs> that uh, could be different. You know, people would look at us like we fell from the moon because they, we would look different to them. Well, I think if AI is uh, evolves in the next 100 years, AI will be carrying fetuses. We will no longer need the human anatomy to carry a fetus. You, could, you, you won't need to a surrogate human. You could surrogate out um, a machine. I think that, that you are absolutely right. And I actually believe that um, it could be possible. It could be possible, perhaps that, uh, you know, those uh, stories from the futuristic uh, uh, novels, uh, actually, that, that were written in 50s, 60s and 70s, right? And they projected such incredible information into the future. And now it is all a reality. Isn't that interesting? It is Very. all a reality now. Now, how in the world could they read that information so that's interesting yeah uh just uh, blows my mind and wait with ai um like you said uh, it could be human sexuality sexuality and sensuality everything would be different now for example i noticed now that there is a trend of um, even if uh, it's age of Aquarius, like you said, the feminine um, influences. However, that what is promoted now is the lack of uh, touch and intimate connection. contact, mm -hmm. lack of connection. So 
how do we go from there? Would that also be a stepping stone toward the society when we would just completely augment our reality and um, change the way that we relate to each other sexually and sensually? It already has. It's that's I think that's I think what we're viewing and what we're witnessing is the process of evolution. It's just a process. It's kind of like when our parents said, yeah, um, you guys are learning so fast. And I think of my own children, like, my goodness, look at them with these like electronics. But I think it's all that's a process of evolution right in front of our eyes. All of these things we are witnessing, this lack of connection, lack of touch is going to lead us into the next evolutionary era. It's a part of evolution. That sounds scary, by the way, Dr. Sherry. That sounds scary that uh, the lack of touch would actually promote a totally different uh, uh, human beings. Yes, because we already know that babies require touch. They'll die without it, right? It's, a, it's a, like a, a fact. Absolutely. Not an opinion. We, babies will die without human touch. So it, that that's yet to be seen but it, i think it is being seen in today's society especially with like i guess we can um input pornography here a lot of people are, are turning to pornography and having connections with people online not even having real human connections they're having com connections through a screen with a with a real person with a real person pretty soon it's going to be substituted substituted with ai it takes the courage, right? Like I, I, I was listening to someone speak, and it says it takes the, it takes if a, a man who's watching. It was a man who spoke, and he said a man who's watching pornography minimizes his courage to go out there and meet someone because because it's right so readily available. Readily available. That is the thing. That is. Um... I believe one of the pathological things in our society, because we do not reach out to human beings next to us. And just because of our insecurities, just because of different kinds of problems, we reach out online because of the fear that we will not be judged. Mm -hmm. So interesting, but uh, there's no personal connection. That's very interesting. It'll be interesting to see how sexual behaviors uh, change over the course of evolution as well. Because without that human touch, you know, you have to, what do you, how do you, do you learn to connect with someone to have intimate relations? It becomes, I think, less and less people will be having those types of relations. Yeah. Do you think that it will lead to uh, the diminishing of our demographics on Earth. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Having. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com.
Perhaps. I think they will definitely be, I think it's creating a desensitization. It's desensitizing us to the natural aspects of uh, sexuality. It's less, oh. sexuality today is less about pr procreating than it is about desire. Mm -hmm. It's about, That's I want pleasure, desire, does it matter? Yeah, something about instant gratification. And a lot of people have this notion that the world is overpopulated. So they or they they limit this themselves into believing that they don't they you know no one needs children. Not to fault anyone who doesn't want children. If you choose not to have children, that's definitely your prerogative, and you know no fault given there. I know that uh, Charlize Theron, she consciously decided not to have children, just because of this. But she's adopted children. Charlize Theron, I don't know, but uh, it's interesting yeah. that uh, it's like uh, I adopt uh, all of my uh, pets, uh, of course, because the, the, those pets that don't have any homes, I adopt them. And I consciously don't go to any of the breeders to get the high, high quality, so to say, right, expensive dog with fantastic uh, pedigree. I don't do that. I take the dogs that, that don't have a home, right? And that's the, the best thing to say somebody. So perhaps that's what it is too uh, for her because the world is overpopulated uh, with homeless children as well who need a warm home, who need love and understanding. Yes. Uh, so perhaps that's uh, what the, the rationale here is as well. Mm -hmm. And I think some people have had really traumatic uh, upbringings that they just don't want to pass on the trauma that they've experienced to children. That's just part of what they feel in their mind. And that's okay if you feel that way. You, know, you can't take somebody's subjective experience and trash it. It's like, we can't take that away from anybody. That's their experience. Absolutely. We will be absolutely surprised uh, that uh, even in a few years, how things will change, Dr. Sherry, because now I look at uh, the AI technology and it blows my mind. You know, I was playing with it the, the other day and I asked for AI to create a certain image for me. I was speechless. I was absolutely speechless how it would produce something that doesn't exist and put it uh, actually together. Uh, so we never know how the world is going to change. No, but we have to embrace it and try to make it a better place. Uh, you know, <laughs> diminish the labels, diminish the taboo. I mean, let's think about um, sexual orientation, right? I mean, what is sexual orientation? It's basically someone's patterns of attachment. I mean, attractions, romantic, sexual, or emotional. It's what we're attracted to, how we are attracted to other people of particular genders. There's a list of them. I will go through them. There's let's do it, Dr. Sherry. I think we're very familiar with the heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual. There's pansexual. That's attraction to someone regardless of their genity or identity. There's asexual, where people, that's a person who has a lack of sexual attraction to others. There's demisexual. That's a person who has a sexual attraction only after they have an emotional connection with someone. There's queer, which is used as an umbrella term to describe non-heterosexual orientation and identities. There's uh, people who are questioning. They're not, they're not sure about their sexuality. There's polysexual. These people, uh, people who identify as polysexual have attraction to multi-genders, multiple genders, regardless if it's a man or a woman. 
There's androgynosexual. These, uh, those who identify as androgynosexual are attracted to androgynous people, regardless of their, their gender. There's hold on, hold on. <laughs> what does that mean, androgynous, regardless of uh, their gender? Androgynous well, already implies that, that they're female and male in one, correct? Well, yeah, androgynous, but like, like a woman may wear a suit and uh -huh. have really short hair. So someone maybe look like she kind of looks like a male, but someone that a woman who I, that looks kind of like a male dressed in a suit who could be, you know, honestly, very sexy. They would be attracted to a woman who's more androgynous, maybe a woman who is showing masculine tendencies. Oh, or, so who is not sexually, in fact, a man that she is a female, but dresses as a man. Or vice versa. Mm -hmm. or a ma ma so I male. would understand it. <laughs> yes. Right. So, and, and that person who is androgynous sexu sexual is, is attracted to someone who is androgynous. So they're attracted to someone regardless of the gender. So there's uh, scoliosexual, which is an attraction to non-binary or queer gender. There's gray sexual, which is uh, those who experience sexual attractions in only in uh, specific circumstances. So I guess they're in a gray area. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh, the gray area. Interesting, the grays. Okay. There's autosexual, those who are only attracted primarily to themselves. Oh, this is interesting. <laughs> this it's, is interesting. It's like primosexual. And they re generally reject the traditional sexual orientations. And there's people who are fluid and their, their sexuality tends, tends to change over time. So there's a list of these labels and these orientations. You know, uh, there's a quote. It's, uh, it says, "Sex, um, sexuality should not define you, and uh, sexuality is something we create. Sex, sex, sex is what we are. It's what we do. Sexuality is something that we create. It's our, like our orientation is something we come up with to identify as, uh -huh. based on who we're attracted to. Not to be." Not to be um, confused with gender identity. Gender identity is where individuals, it's what they feel they are on the inside. Even though I'm a female, at times I may have felt masculine. I may have identified as with masculine tendencies and vice versa for other people. So your gender identity is something you deeply feel within yourself. It could be either or. Some days you could feel feminine and you can, some people go, you know, no matter what you're assigned at birth is what I'm saying you may identify as other than female. And that's gender identity. Gender identity, this is very interesting. Um, hmm. There is a lot of debate going on right now uh, with um, whether the sex is uh, assigned at the birth, right? Uh, some proponents of this theory, right? Uh, um, they say that the, the gender is assigned at the birth and biologically, realistically it is not assigned at the birth perhaps on the paper it is reflected but at the same time uh the baby's gender was already decided and defined at the time of the conception almost so if you look at it this way it is uh you can do anything with that uh, so you can just uh, deny completely the genders and um, pronounce yourself as whatever right oh, yeah yeah, gender identity, a lot of times you'll see people being expressed with closing appearance, pronoun usage, as you're saying, and how they express their sexuality. Like somebody who's trans, trans transgender is not a sexual orientation. Transgender is a uh, gender identity, right? So a lot of, 
that, that can cause some confusion. Like, but that would also uh, cause a different sexual orientation, correct? It would likely be someone who is attracted to one. Because there's people, there's men and women who identify as transgender, but they don't, they're not gay or lesbian. They still are attracted to like a man who has uh, trans transitioned into a woman may still be attracted to women. So just because they have trans their gender, however, their sexual orientation hasn't changed. This is so interesting. But it would change, I guess, when they're trans, because if they're now a woman, they would become a lesbian. Mm -hmm. So they will be attracting lesbian partners. Right. But as a heterosexual male who was with a woman and heterosexual, once the heterosexual male transgenders and loves women, I guess he would then identify or she would then identify as a, a lesbian or gay. Okay. It, it, things get pretty confusing. I have to dive into it and to understand it all. And that requires a, probably a separate uh, uh, episode <laughs> on just that for me to understand it completely. And probably by the time I understand it, there's going to be something new coming up and I will con completely be lost in everything. Well, I think oh. if we take away the labels and just if, if people could see that sexuality is fluid and we removed all these labels, and I know people will criticize me for saying this because a lot of people have worked so hard for the freedom to, to identify as someone other right. than heterosexual, right? Yeah. But I think if we could just see sexuality as fluid and stop holding so much weight on this taboo of who's doing what with who, I think we could put some peace to that situation, that conversation. I guess uh, perhaps societally, um, maybe that uh, would be a good idea. Nevertheless, uh, the gender identity uh, did not go anywhere and we still uh, have our own genders like female and male and now it's changing now, right? Uh, um, it used to be female and male. Now, if you are now, if you align with the the sex, the birth, the sex you were giving at birth, you're considered cisgender. Elaborate on that, please, Doctor Sherry. Like uh, those who are, uh, if I, if you align with the sex you were given at birth, you are now considered to be cisgender. If you transition, you're transgender. If you do not identify with a gender, you are non-binary. There's gender queer, and these people are often uh, gender fluid. They're non-binary or beyond traditional. And, then, and cisgender? We would, we would be considered cisgender under gender identity because we identify as what we were given at birth. Ooh, okay. Cisgender. Now I need to remember that next time I apply somewhere, they ask me about my gender. Because uh, it's so interesting that I was filling out the... Uh, um, uh, the questionnaire from the doctor's office for my dad, and my dad is 79 years old, and the new questionnaire that came in asked about his sexual orientation, and that was so interesting. It was funny at the time because he's 79, in all of those different orientations, right? And just to be funny, I put there all the sorts of different things for him when he is not actually that he's a um, heterosexual and that what we know, my poor dad, if he's watching it right now. <laughs> but it was so funny. Of course, the people uh, choose not to respond. But at the same time, they would ask, what do you identify 
as nowadays. So, so I identified him something that he is actually because um, <laughs> the question will never come up and uh, no one will refer to him as such. But nowadays there's a tendency to even ask uh, uh, on a consistent basis, uh, what do you identify as? Yeah, and you have just identified that that's how statistics can become skewed. Statistics, exactly. We can just like throw it out of the room. But what do you think, like consider with this kind of a tendency in a hundred years, consider that you and I just jumped, did a quantum jump in a hundred years from now, what would humans be like? I don't, I think it will be irrelevant. This will be irrelevant in a hundred years. I think it's uh, also, uh, I'll go far as out on a limb here to say religion as well will be somewhat um, mm -hmm. irrelevant to the species a hundred years from now, because I, uh, someone was, I don't, I don't recall who, but I was listening again to a, another podcast and they were saying how when people start, when gender becomes so um, complex and so does sexuality and becomes so complex, it often depicts an end of an era because it's there's such a smorgasbord of identification, orientation. When was the last time it happened in the history? Oh, maybe the Roman times. The Roman times, okay. Maybe, mm -hmm. before the, the fall of that, when heterosexuality was, I mean, mm -hmm. homosexuality was probably more prevalent, but people would, uh, men would, would be dressing as women and... I'm not sure if women were dressing as men. I don't know the history all that well, so I'm not, not. Mm -hmm. not quoting what was happening back then. But I think it's um, same thing. They uh, Rollo May, existentialist Rollo May, says in an interview that there becomes a time in history or in your present time when everybody there's a psychologist for almost every person, and that often also depicts the end of an era. That is very interesting and actually pretty scary that it is going to be the end of an era. And if it is not going to be in yours and my time, it's going to be in the time of our children. Mm -hmm. But for them, it is not going to be shocking, of course, because they grew up in this society. And for them, it will be a normalcy, an acceptable thing. Mm -hmm. The end of an era. Well, you said that we're going to um, have a fun conversation. Let's have a fun conversation. Kind of sad to think that this is the end of the era, right? <laughs> and things are going to well, change like, so dramatically. There's a beginning, right? I mean, I, I think it will become foggy for a long time and it'll clear again. It's like a storm, right? There's a storm. There's the clouds. There's a rain, the thunderstorm. But then there comes the sun and you have a rainbow. So I think just like all of history, you know, people think we, we have it so bad now. Look back in history. I mean, imagine living in those times. I mean, I don't think we have it bad at all. I think we have it magical today compared to how they used to be. No antiseptic, you know, no, uh, <laughs> no anesthesia. I mean, <laughs> torture chambers, torture. the plague. Yeah, there was uh, 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 genital mutilation, which is, I hope, is ending uh, now, but it's a cultural phenomena. Of course, it's not in every culture, but the, in some tribal tribal systems in Africa, correct? Well, actually, um, circumcision is also considered genital mutilation. Well, yeah, we have that in our society right in front of our noses, and we're looking to Africa. 
we already have genital mutilation here. In fact, every single time when a, uh, when a boy is born here in the United States, come on, it is uh, uh, the genital mutilation is performed every single time. So Boy. It, 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 it. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. As much as we try to have fun, we get deeper and deeper <laughs> in the rabbit hole. Deeper <laughs> and deeper. That's right. Because we're discovering that things have not changed that drastically from the ancient times. You know, we still have uh, a lot of, uh, just like uh, um, in Hellenistic times, a lot of homosexuality, right? It just was a taboo at some point in time uh, in history, and then it became uh, back uh, to, uh, came back to normalcy. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's a curiosity. It's like only human sexuality is also a curiosity. We're, we're humans, we're curious. So we're curious to know if we change this, change that, if we manipulate, what will happen? Yeah, I know that a lot of people, uh, they are really biased uh, against. And I know that uh, probably a long time ago, I was too, because uh, you grew up in this uh, Christian environment and you think that, oh, this is really bad. And then with time, I changed um, my perspective because I would see a lot of gay people and uh, they would be uh, the, the, the sweetest people ever. And they would be raising children um, the society, of course, it depends like where you live, but uh, here in California, it is not as uh, dire, but there I live in the Midwest and I had uh, two guys uh, who were uh, married to each other and were raising two children. They were the sweetest ones. And of course, so we can look at the heterosexual um, relationships and even homosexual, and we can see that, that there is a pathology, but nevertheless, uh, I would say um, live and let, let live. However, yeah. what I would um, point out, uh, that is uh, one of my hot buttons, I would say, that I do not uh, um, stand for uh, children changing their sexual orientation, not even, they can change, they can believe whatever they are, but not changing biologically. Yes, no Here, puberty blockers. Exactly. That's and a parental thing there. Oh, uh, actually, my dear Dr. Sherry, it may not even be a parental thing nowadays because in California, children are allowed to change their sex without the parental consent. Just think about it. At what age? Uh, I don't remember what age. I think at the age of 12. But who's going to pay for it, right? Nowadays, uh, uh, I speak to the school's counselors, I speak to uh, the head of schools, uh, uh, principals, assistant principals. And what happens is that I see this, this dire trend of uh, not just the lack of freedom of speech, but complete disregard for even parental involvement in the decision-making of their children. They can go to school and say, okay, like identify as a boy. And God forbid people, the parents come and say, no, we don't allow you to do that because you are still a youngster. Your sexuality is still changing. My God, your psychology is still changing. Your identity is changing all the time. It is not set in stone as of yet. Uh, how can we disregard um, human psychology? How can we disregard all of the research and actually be proponents of this kind of change, biological change in children and give them hormones to change their sex. 
Well, I think it's going to take enough cases of enough people coming forward who have had these surgeries and have had these changes and they're having regrets. I mean, I've seen it. I'm seeing it more now that people are coming out and saying that they regret their decision. Please wait. So it's it's probably going to take people who have actually transitioned to influence others. But children, again, it's I, I am sexually fluid. I believe that everything about orientation and how we look at people with orientation, every almost every part of each word that someone identifies as an orientation, the last part of that word is sexual, right? I'm sexual this, I'm sexual that, asexual, bisexual, demisexual, whatever sexual you are. We're so held up on the orientation of what someone does in what regard should be private. So I, I would hope that we could get to a place in our reality, hopefully in my lifetime, that we stop focusing on what people do in the bedroom or wherever they're doing these sexual acts with themselves or other people and focus on the things that are important, loving one another, kindness, lifting each other up. I think we're far, far fetched and far away from that. I support your uh, opinion on that. I do not, um, I am not, I am completely opposed against children having those types of influences in their life, especially parents out there who are exploiting their children. And there's some kind of, I believe some of these parents are getting some kind of psychological validation for their own, uh, I want to call it a sickness of their own to be pushing your children into trying to change their actual anatomy. I think that's going a bit far. Again, let them identify with their sexual orientation. However, don't mutilate them. Don't allow them to mutilate their physical anatomy. I think that makes me a little heated, that topic. Yeah, exactly. Like one of our hot topics, hot buttons, right? I have it's some really hot sad. buttons. And it is, it is very sad. But if you look, like, for example, Angelina Jolie and her daughter, correct? For a while, I thought it was a boy because I didn't see that she had a girl. It was a girl. It was a boy. And just recently, because I don't follow social media, just like that old celebrities, uh, I have, I guess, some better things to do. <laughs> I realized, I, I actually saw that in the news, what was that, like last year, that the, her son, that I thought it was a son, actually I became think back was a her girl. Name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she decided, and thank God, like uh, she stopped her, um, I believe, uh, medications to become uh, uh, um, a boy. So a good thing that she did that right in time, because from the early childhood uh, that uh, she wanted to be a boy, and now she's such a gorgeous woman. Yes. You know, <laughs> the funny thing, uh, Dr. Sherry, I would share with you, I grew up with boys. I grew up uh, with my brothers, my brother and my cousin. We were re closely re related in age. And I was growing up. I didn't have any cousin sisters, uh, female cousins. I didn't have any sisters. So I wanted to be a boy. And I wore boys clothes, shorts and pants. I wore short hair. And I wanted to be a boy. My That's very not... normal. It's actually very normal. It is. It is. Children, children go through that. Well, children go through sexuality. Sexuality is on a continuum. It changes over time. Like yourself, I'm living proof as well. I've lived my life being attracted to men and women, having sex with men and women. So it changes over our lifetime. There's a lot of women who are heterosexual. For research goes to show that they're heterosexual most of their lives, and they turn they they, they are attracted to women later in life. It happens. It's fluid. I just am, you know, proponent for sexual flu fluidity. Um, 
But so interesting that you mentioned. Also, let's remind our uh, listeners that you're coming live from United Public Radio 107.7 in New Orleans from Be Honest Talks. Be Honest Talks, exactly. Join us, ask us questions. In fact, I need to check if we have any questions. We do. So let's just see. Okay. Infection control in men. Diane Brighton is here. Uh, okay. I don't um, actually understand. It's just a, a, a comment that Diane, if, she, if you could repeat it uh, um, with a better spelling, maybe I would be able to answer that question. So, but the yes, please ask us questions, send us question, questions so we could elaborate on different topics if you are interested. Oh, um, in utero, let's, when you're talking about like identifying, we feel more masculine. I grew up with a brother as well, and a lot of my cousins were male. A lot of times the influences around us when we're kids, we t tend to be drawn to that. In addition to when I was doing some research in, uh, in my graduate studies, I also learned that there's a level of testosterone that we're exposed to in utero. And if there's a higher level of testosterone, we tend to be like women who were exposed to higher levels of testosterone in utero from their mother's hormones, they have a tendency to be attracted to women. And men who had lower um, levels of testosterone were shown to be attracted to men later in life. So it's a study. I don't I don't recall her name, but I can look it up if anybody reaches out to us and wants to know that study. I'd be happy to share it with you. That is so interesting. It looks like uh, that uh, when we look at the gender identity, like you said, that that has nothing to do with sexuality. Right. The gender identity at the very beginning, like uh, when I wanted to well, be that's a how boy. Right. Yeah. So, well, I wanted to be a boy. I was a child. I knew nothing about sexuality. I wanted to just to be a boy and engage in boy sports. And in fact, this is what I did. I climbed the trees. I jumped and uh, I rode the, I, no, I did not ride the bike. I just actually just recently run, learned how to ride a bike. But I was just like running around like crazy, like a boy. And I did everything that boys did. But imagine my parents were listening to me at the time. Thank God it was a different time. And would imagine that they would say, oh, yeah, we're supporting you in that. You're six years old. You know, let's just do it. La mm, you, uh, we would totally support you in that. Let's, let's research some biological means medications, how to make you a boy. Imagine the world would have lost such an incredible woman like me. <laughs> That's right. In, a, in addition to, you know, in addition to the mutilation that comes with it, think about putting your child... I don't even think a lot of people out there even think twice about putting their children on mental illness medicines either. And I'm not condoning or, you know, not supporting or not, not opposing it either in certain circumstances. But I think a lot of people in this society want a quick fix or they, you know, there, there's no quick fix. There's no magic pill. I even like even the weight loss pills. I heard you have to take it for life. I mean, it's, it's not a magic pill. Something that's magic is it should occur occur and remain, you know, without maintenance. So you're putting, you would be putting a puberty blocker in your child, which is essentially a hormone, correct? It is. So you're putting a, a foreign substance in your child's body. 
it's no, definitely altering it, human sexuality. Exactly. And when uh, the children that would grow up and actually uh, uh, set their identity, right, they would uh, have enough of understanding of themselves, about their peers, they would stop uh, being confused about themselves with the peer pressure, for example, right? And they would say, okay, you know, that I'm uh, um, biological man, a boy, a young man, and I want to remain such. But imagine that, for example, even though a, a girl that wanted to be a boy, a teenager girl who wanted to be a boy would be given those hormones, and then she would not develop correctly. She would not be able to have children, and that she will be crippled for life when she would get back um, uh, to the understanding that, you know, being a girl is good. So that is, I don't even know what it is. In my understanding, it's just um, someone under the disguise of benevolence and listening to the needs of our children wants to destroy our society somehow. And if we um, look at it this way, like in a 10 years, in 15 or 20, 50, let's say 50 years, a lot of the children would be crippled. And I don't believe that there's any benevolence behind it. Yeah, we... Um, we the, the schools. Money. Oh, yeah, it is Green. money. Exactly. Power. Money and greed and power. That's what it is. Because if you go to schools, uh, where do they get these ideas? They get it from the media. They get it also through teachers. And I'm not the, uh, talking about the other like, kid that in the Midwest, in the United States, it's totally different. In the South, it's different. But here in California, it's like a separate country, as if we are separated from the United States. We're right? trying to be so liberal and so accepting. I mean, look at the further up the East Coast. I believe it's Oregon that every drug is legal. But if you see some of the streets now, no, this is a completely different topic. It's not, do, it doesn't look like it's doing so well. We'll see what research has to say years from now. I still carry it back to all these identities and labels. As much, if we continue to live under these identities and labels, people are gonna wanna change to conform to a certain label so people can identify them as such. I'm this, I'm that. If two people are standing together, why does it matter if they make out and play with each other's parts? It really doesn't. But we make such a big deal out of it because it's taboo. And besides, so we come from our own cultural backgrounds, uh, whether it's acceptable or not. And it comes to the time, like uh, as a psychologist, for example, with the understanding of biology and uh, human how human mind works, I would probably make my own observations. And if I looked at the teenagers uh, uh, in front of me with the um, complete change identities, right? And uh, representing something out of themselves that not something other, but something completely other. I would I'd call it an it because uh, there's no identification like sometimes with anything else. It's like it. And in my understanding that a lot of people will be, will be it in a hundred years because there is this tendency in the media. I have been observing that for the past 10 years is complete merging of all of the sexual traits of all the sexual identities, gender identities becoming an it. It's not distinguishable from, uh, it's a completely new fluid. species. It would probably be fluid at that point, correct? It would, you can't identify it. It just something that's fluid is just 
It's unidentifiable. The waves are fluid, right? So it's right. never unidentifiable, right? And now there is a tendency for unisex uh, uh, clothing for children, right? And uh, for unisex bathrooms, okay, that's, uh, uh, to tell you the truth, I don't want to go to the bathroom where the guys go to the bathroom, you know, because uh, it, uh, it doesn't smell good to me. I don't want to see urinals. That's what they're called. I don't want to see them. I would, I prefer to go to the bathroom that has, uh, uh, that were designed for women without urinals. So to me, like sometimes, for example, like when the female bathrooms, they tend to be so congested for pity's sake, there are lines. And what do, what do we do there in those bathrooms? And those, the guy bathrooms are just sometimes empty. Yeah, I would go to those bathrooms, you know, like to, I, to, to use. But at the same time, I don't appreciate it. I don't want to see what I don't want to see. But the, here's a tendency that the, for unisex bathrooms, anyone can go and... Uh, maybe on one hand, it is okay. Maybe in the future, this is what it is going to be. Uh, we'll be using just the unisex bathrooms. There will be no uh, separation between um, them. But it is in the future. It is definitely in the future, Dr. Sherry. It'd have to be a lot more acceptance for, you know, and safety. Rule out safety issues. Are people being assaulted in bathrooms? I mean, I'm sure it is a part of the future. As long as there's locks on the bathroom stalls, you know, I think some people think that's a safety. Um, I'm open to the thing. I'm open to change. I'm just not, uh, I just think that I'm just a proponent that if you're born biologically a male or a female, that that's, that's who you are. Even if you transition yourself, if you go into the military or into sports, such so on and so forth. I'm still, uh, I'm still on the side of, uh, if you were born biologically male, you should not be competing against a biological female. I agree with you. And what, whatever happens when we become an it, you know, tag or it used to be a game, right? When you're tag, you're mm -hmm. it yeah. you into a population of it. That's wow. What a profound statement. Yeah, I don't even I know what that looks like. It kind of looks like you, what do you have? No parts. <laughs> I mean, what is it? Perhaps that we'll further into that. Perhaps we'll still have our parts, our biological parts, but mentally, we will be changed into something that is non-distinguishable. Uh, and how are we going to be attracted to each other? Because there has been a trend in movies, and you know, it is such a subtle influence on human mind, on human psychology, especially on children, on teenagers that are watching these popular movies, even now with the COK, like John Wick, right, I was watching uh, with Keanu Reeves. And there is this entity that is completely androgynous. Uh, it, it is an it. You cannot d distinguish who that is. Uh, and there is no tendency to even to distinguish. This is, uh, I think, the media is really creating the it person so it's if the it is it factor it's the maybe perhaps we should call the it factor and we are moving toward itness so so yeah it is it. Uh, it's very it. interesting you're an it you're an it and um we are not here to offend anyone of course uh, the, this is just a, a discussion of possibilities and observation of how the society is and uh, but the thing is it affects uh, the minds of our children and for them it becomes a normalcy 
And children see that. And then when they see that in the society, of course, for them, it is uh, uh, so normal. They don't even look at it. They don't even point a finger. And then not only that, but they accept that. And they may identify with it because it is so socially acceptable. Like you said, the society changes on its own accord. It's all natural laws. Yes, I, I, don't, I don't think children should be identifying with any kind of sexuality. When that's why I keep saying like these sexual orientations, that sexual part of the word, that's generally a, a sexualness is considered an adult thing, right? We don't, maybe when you start puberty, you get into the sexual realm of things, but children, teenagers are not children, they're children. I don't think in any way, shape or form, children should be identifying as sexualities. You know, they're, again, like you said, their prefrontal cortex is not developed. I mean, I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. They don't even think about these things. If my three-year-old came to me and said, I feel demisexual, I would lose, I would probably fall on the floor. I mean, you know, and again, like you're saying, I respect everyone's opinion and their identification as who they are. I'm not trying to diminish anybody here, but I think sexuality and children don't mix. They're what's used to make them. That's true. That's absolutely is the case. Well, Dr. Sherry, let's move to something uh, <laughs> more um, nice, uplifting. Um, I was going to go into sexual dysfunction, but that's not uplifting at all. Well, sexual <laughs> <laughs> How about sexual the persistent genital arousal disorder? Oh, my God. You know, for some people, it is not funny at all, my dear. Right. Because there's some people. I think I'm having an orgasm right now. I'm just kidding. Exactly. Who are having an orgasm all the time, anywhere they go. They have a disability. Mm -hmm. That disability is, in fact, a real disability. And there is a woman. Uh, there are many cases. Uh, but uh, one of the cases that the woman, that she is just uh, unable to... Um, sort of like be still for her is a normalcy to orgasm and orgasm all the time. She can't go to the store. She can't work. She can't do anything. She's so just having orgasm. Well, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for her as well, because uh, you, mm -hmm. uh, it's, you, it, orgasm cannot go unnoticed. That's the thing. I think it was biologically like designed that way, right? Like it can't go unnoticed that uh, you are there. Uh, you're there and, there was an um, uh, interesting sexual psychological study was uh, done on people who are uh, in, the, um, in the moment of orgasm. And so interesting for the found, can you imagine like people will come up with this kind of uh, um, psychological studies? I want to think it's fantastic. You know, if I sit like behind the <laughs> mirror, right, and someone <laughs> is having the orgasm in front of me, why not, right? So that was kind of uh, interesting. And what it was, the conclusions uh, of the study is that um, people who orgasm have the same facial expression expressions as during the intense pain. That so is it's very... triggering similar neurons in the brain, but instead of pain, it's experience. Because I think pleasure and pain is uh, is a same signals in our brain, right? The brain doesn't distinguish between the two facial yeah. eyes. 
But the facial wise, perhaps that is so interesting because it's the two poles of one emotion, right? So uh, how do we distinguish? Like if you look at somebody who's having an orgasm without any uh, audio, right? That you would think that the person is in intense pain. If you don't see, <laughs> if you don't see uh, anything else, that you like look at the face. Yeah, the person is in intense pain. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. I'm, I'm looking this one up. <laughs> yeah, can hardly wait. That's a legitimate, legitimate. Well, yeah. Study. I mean, persistent orgasm we it's almost it's a curse right so it's for some curse. people maybe as a result of sexual trauma you can't they have have a hard time having an orgasm or psychological distress and here you have people who can't stop having them which is distressing it is absolutely i wonder distressing. how common it is i didn't i didn't look i didn't look up to see the um the, <laughs> you know how, how rare it is or Look it up right now. Let's just see how it is because I'm so also interested too. You know, I was, um, in fact, we had uh, the goal of uh, actually talking about uh, sexual sensuality, but that is such a long topic and we just uh, can't uh, discuss it uh, with the time frame. I think it should be the absolutely new topic of discussion because it has a lot of nuances, a lot of interesting things that need to be discussed. So in regard of the uh, pathology, sexual pathologies, um, yes, it's like also the addiction to pornography uh while we uh do not uh, approve it and condone it a lot of the times for people who suffer from that and it is an addiction there is a lot of shame a lot of shame there i remember also uh well in this case there was no shame in the as, as a therapist i remember one of my clients one time uh texted me something it was like 10 o'clock at night and i received that text and i had no idea how to respond to it because he was just asking me oh, well what do i do i need to come and my wife does not want to uh have sex with me and he did have a, a problem with them uh erectile function not really erectile function. He had uh, uh, addiction to it. So compulsive uh, um, erotic uh, pornography consumption. Not like pornography, but uh, it was um, addiction to eroticism, I would say. And he needed to have a, a ejaculation and had an orgasm all the time. So what happened? I did not even know how to respond. You know, she, she doesn't want to do it. What do I do? I can't do it all the time on my own. Well, I responded to him like, it, what, what could I do? And I'm not the sex therapist, right? And I had to come up with something. And I told him to do push-ups. You know, push-ups for me is like mental push-ups all the time. It's the physical push-ups. And there I suggested for him to do push-ups because sometimes we wouldn't have an answer to things, right? Like in my mind, like I do push-ups, some physical well, activity. Physical exactly, exactly. Physical exertion. And the, the question was, how many? <laughs> and I had to come up with how many. And then he thanked me and he said, really, thank you, Dr. Yana. It really helped me. So there are questions sometimes that arise that we don't even know the answers to. But for those people um, who have this kind of um, 
thing going on in their uh, bodies, right? In their health conditions. Uh, we don't want to over pathologize and call it uh, something else, like you said, uh, taking labels off. But nevertheless, uh, those conditions can be really debilitating and hard to deal with. And there is a lot of shame that happens and takes place that we don't know. We may condemn those people and uh, I, I am not uh, justifying, of course, that behavior, uh, the addiction to pornography, but at the same time, if we look uh, uh, from the perspective of the people who are engaged in that, uh, there is a lot of shame involved. They are uh, not too happy about um, uh, their addictions. Or it can be, in addition to the addiction, I think, well, first of all, do you know if he did it, the push-ups with clothes or no clothes? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, with clothes. With clothes. Okay, Why? With clothes. <laughs> Why? Well, he was so into eroticism. Maybe he liked his penis to touch the floor as he did the push-up. I don't know. I'm, I'm sitting here wondering what this man was doing for the push-ups. You know, where the human mind goes. I tell yeah, you. the human mind goes exactly. And I guess the physical exertion uh, really helped him. So well, yeah, I think pornography consumption is also a quick fix. It's also an easy thing for a lot of people. I recently had a, an individual come to me and they spoke about pornography and they were talking about how the genres have changed. And they said more and more today, you'll see like the, the uh, incestual uh, sexual novice novelty out there. So you'll have like step parent with a daughter or something like that, or wherever, somewhere in the fam family. So this incestuous taboo is also become a part of pornography so the amount of stuff out there is it's i don't want to call it crazy but it's like wow yeah it, but, i think a lot of this we, appeal, we don't want to call it crazy of course because uh, that is one of the human conditions and uh, that would also be pathologizing that mm -hmm. is not the medical uh terminology at all but uh yeah in um society so say, this is what we do we're so calling crazy Sensitization from pornography causes people to seek out more. I don't want to call it a sexual deviance per se, but to seek out things that are more fantasy or taboo because it uh, it's an appeal. It could be it always anything that is prohibited is uh, uh, can be appealing, of course, mm -hmm. and that is also in human relationships. Uh, just look uh, at. Um, uh, just a regular relationship, uh, for example, uh, a man pursuing a woman, and there's so many different women at the same time, and he's not, uh, for example, emotionally attached to her yet, right? But nevertheless, her not being readily available or refusing his um, advances, she would immediately become appealing, even if she looks like uh, uh, a dragon, a bearded dragon, you know, that uh, she would also be appealing to him. <laughs> we have a saying, life is evil. You can even fall in love with a goat, you know. Mm -hmm. So you don't even have to be beautiful in the societal standards, right? What is beauty? But the thing is, is that you are particularly perfect and beautiful uh, for one person, right? Or for several people, of course, who come in contact with you but we don't have to have incredible uh, we don't have to be incredibly beautiful as in societal standards because if you look now what beauty is like we discussed it's an it you look at the models uh there's no makeup on them short hair uh female models uh wearing um baggy um male suits 
So it's not even a male suit. It is a baggy male suit. So we are going, turning to some idness here, not even uh, any um, identification with anything at all. We're blending. We're blending, right. Uh, so what was the question? So 1.1% of men. My, my mind just disappeared. Went away already. <laughs> 1.1% of males and 0.6% of females will often, well, will, uh, may suffer from persistent genital disorder. 0.6. So it's not that persistent genital arousal disorder, excuse me. While it can be so difficult for them, would it be fun to experience it sometime? Yeah, I guess, <laughs> I guess anything else, you would just get so tired of it. Like, ah, again, you know, you're like, <laughs> even though it feels so good, I wonder if it actually feels good. Because uh, it did say here um, that um, it can be associated with chronic pelvic pain, which affects 15 Ooh. to 20 percent of the women uh, with reproductive age worldwide. So well, in addition well, to that, it may cause Because pain. the muscles contract. Muscles contract. And the, you're exercising not your biceps. You're exercising your muscles, vaginal mu muscles, right? So of course it's going to give you pelvic pain. Do you so, think um, hypnosis would have um, any bearing on assisting in some kind of change of that or is so. that a neurological I think disorder so. i think so you know with any kind of a disorder i think hypnosis is a wonderful tool i uh, i know that the, with this kind of um a condition that medication actually does not help what can it do uh but um hypnosis with hypnosis we can look at the core uh problem with the, the problem that stands behind the issue so instead of uh, treating the symptoms, we can actually go to the origin of the problem and solve the problem there. So I believe it is quite possible. And thank you for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. It is quite possible. And both you and I are hypnotherapists. And uh, if people who are listening uh, who have that uh, problem or any kinds of problems, you can always uh, reach out to us uh, uh, through our website, uh, Be Honest. Uh, podcast.com uh, and through uh, write to us uh, the, the questions or your requests in the email address and uh, just um, come ask us question we never judge we uh, listen and um, try to understand the situation because um, as therapists we are design this way to empathize and uh, to solve the problems. But uh, the thing is that uh, there are um, conditions um, that are untreatable or treatable only the symptoms sometimes and not even effective. So look for um, the hypnotherapists uh, with the um, great uh, uh, experience and credentials in order to relay your problems to them and know that, that they will be, they will have enough education to resolve your problem if it is possible. So yes, that's a great topic, by the way, Dr. Sherry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to solve problems. Uh, yeah, yeah through, if you need some sexual coaching, reach out. And Dr. Sherry is the sexual coach, right? Yes, I do specialize in that. <laughs> So not all of us, we all specialize in different things. And Dr. Sherry is a professional in that. So please reach out to her. Uh, she is fantastic. She's very empathetic. She is <laughs> awesome. She's beautiful. And, you know, I was thinking, um, 
like you mentioned uh, uh, about the sexual fluidity, uh, I was thinking, okay, that uh, you look so beautiful and being with other beautiful women is uh, can be that the, even the, the work of art, so to say, right? And um, but it does. Uh, um, it does. It can create some problems for other people, right? If they look at uh, uh, lesbians and they say that, uh, oh, um, this is just unacceptable, right? Yeah, you have to. People carry so much shame because of societal norms, right? Like there's a quote that says, um, "If every time you have sex, you have to go into a confession box, you'll never accept your sexuality. If every time you do something, even outside of sex, you can't accept it, you'll you'll never truly accept who you are." To go to a confession box. What is a confession box? Like in Catholicism, per se. Like oh, that. Oh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every yeah, time yeah, yeah. you do, you act on something, you feel shame about it. It's, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's not good for you as a person. Just either don't engage in it anymore or just get to a point where you feel comfortable accepting what you're doing. It's just, it's a sexual act. It is a work of art. It's just a moment in time right but we place so many labels around it i've even not encountered certain situations because i i because of the labels you know i chose well i'm not going to do it this time because i put a label on it well and i look back and i'm like what was i thinking i missed a complete opportunity to make art <laughs> sexual art but i mean i missed out that on that opportunity because i chose to be hung up on a label exactly but I exactly but the thing is that we should also remember that, that there is uh, uh, this incredible shame component, and that could be a topic of a separate conversation. But what we should remember is that um, the shame concept uh, in Catholicism and Christianity in general um, is man-made. Mm -hmm. Confessions are man-made, and I encourage people who are struggling uh, with this issue, with a shame, perhaps with religious shame, to look into the history of religion. And you will know that that concept is man-made. So yes. that shame that we are, that they speak to us and saying that we were born in the, uh, what is it, in the sin. In or the, the eyes concept, of the Lord. Oh, that concept of the sin and shame is just like brushes me against my beautiful fur right here, you know, just against, not in the direction, but against. So what happens is that uh, as a concept designed by humans, it was designed to oppress the masses. And who designed it? The governing bodies, the governments that were that designed it to oppress the masses. So if you still uh, remain in shame and in sin all the time, you can always come back. You can always pay. You can always go to the box, <laughs> confession box, like you said, right? It's, a, uh, it's really a useless emotion. You know, it's a useless thing for your life to live in shame. It, it limits you to being something that you want to be. You want to experience something, but you're clouded with this cloud of shame. And it's, it, it's, it's unfortunate, but hopefully but, you can grow out of it. Yeah, but also in the churches, uh, it is taught that shame is kind of a uh, uh, satanic feeling that the, the enemy will come and uh, uh, this is how he deceives you, nevertheless, like to feel shame about something. Nevertheless, it's like the double standard, right? Nevertheless, the church itself uh, plays such a huge amount of shame on you that 
from which there is no way out unless you go to confession and even then you will be dirty because you were born in the sin. I was not born innocent. I confess to that. I don't have to go to the confession box. I was not born innocent. I was born with parents, with my parents who loved each other and I was a love child. So for us, for people who are actually born, that was, uh, we were designed this way, as we described today, we were designed this way to procreate. There's no sin about it, you know, and actual, the con concept of uh, premarital sex or uh, sex, uh, in marital sex, uh, postmarital sex, all of that also was designed by people because in ancient times, there was no such a thing as official marriage was no such thing as official marriage. And that was people were just like families would shake, shake hands. And that was officially uh, signed as a marriage between two people. And yeah, it used to take a village, but people strayed from the village mm -hmm. and became owners, having ownership of property and people. And, mm -hmm. and you know, all the evolution of like, you're mine. And all, again, that plays in genetic variation as well. It's like, um, you're mine. And, and I want to know that the children you're having are mine. But of course, people stray and all those things. But yeah, I agree with you. Anytime we carry, that's why I believe in sexual fluidity. Because if we can believe that sexual sexuality is fluid and we stop tying so many labels to it, we decrease the amount of shame attached to it. I'm sexually fluid. Who cares who I sleep with? Why does that matter on the conversation that I might be having with somebody about marketing? Why does it matter? You know, the most important thing, Dr. Sherry, is that you don't give, uh, uh, how am I going to say it? I'm not going to say that word. You don't give it. <laughs> you couldn't care less about what people think about it. You know, I just recently um, found a book, How Not to Give a Fuck About Anything. And that is such a fantastic art book. About, this oh, this art not, not giving a fuck. Mm -hmm. not, not giving a fuck. This is so incredible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sometimes... <clears throat> Yes, as a, as a society and the members of the society, we do want to go along with everybody, right? And we can't just completely disregard the opinions of other people. But hello, if what I do behind the closed doors is my own personal business, nobody else's business, and if you want to discuss it, um, that is your own problem. It's that is absolutely your, You can go and discuss it. <laughs> you can go discuss it with yourself. Uh, to death until pigs come home. No, until pigs fly. And what could cows come home? There. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, again, to, to clarify, yes, what happens behind closed doors, you're right, specifically to sexuality, because we do care about things that happen right. to other things. But however, with sexuality, if it doesn't matter, if I'm trying to pitch the process of making donuts, I'm not talking about the <laughs> hole in the donut has anything to do with the holes behind the doors, right? <laughs> Even though they're both glazed and sweet and all those things. Anyway, exactly. Taking that very far, I think we could probably, um, we're about to come to a conclusion, I'm assuming. We are. That's right. That's right. It was a marvelous conversation, Dr. Sherry. Yes. I learned a lot from you today. That is fantastic. Thank you for talking about sex. It sells, even though we're not selling anything today. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about the sensuality some other time, should make it a topic. So yeah. uh, as our program comes to an end, you were live with us on the United Public Radio Network, 107.7 FM. We have a fantastic episode for you next week. Please join us again on uh, next Friday on February the 15th. We will be talking about the breakfast buffet Serving break, heartbreak, 
with a side of laughter. Let's see what uh, we can do by the breakups, pre-breakup, in-breakup, and post-breakup situations. Right so, after Valentine's Day. Right after Valentine's <laughs> Day. And oh my God, the breakups do happen on Valentine's Day. And uh, and that's again, like you, uh, the concept that was imagined and created by people, the Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. So don't take it don't take it so seriously if you're alone on the valentine's day it is absolutely fine be your own valentine be in right. love with yourself do something good for yourself and we're gonna uh celebrate the couples who are there who will be celebrating that together but those who are single who don't have a valentine don't stress over that because that is also human uh concept created by humans you know and also right. uh um fueled by the media of course so celebrate your yourself own out. yes mm -hmm. exactly celebrate <laughs> yourself as a queen celebrate yourself as a king and be happy with who you are because you are your own first friend your first friend best friend best friend your own best friend so be your own best friend all That's right, right, ladies and gentlemen. And we, be honest. And be honest. Always be honest. And we will see you next time.